All right, good morning, Docs. Uh, good morning. Grab a seat, guys. I love the sound of good conversation. If you guys didn't get a chance to meet someone new, man, grab them after service. I'd love for you to, to keep connecting me with people. Uh, how are we doing this morning? Yeah. If we haven't met yet, my name is Nate. Someone say hi, Nate. Hey, I'm one of the folks on staff here, but we're going to continue on with our series in Mark. So grab your Bible. Um, if you've got an app, if you've got a, a scripture journal, whatever, uh, open up to Mark. We'll be in Mark 14. And we're entering into the last couple weeks of our series. This week, next week, and one more after that. Walking towards some of the darkest and most difficult moments of Jesus' ministry. He's been talking about it. He's been saying, hey, I'm heading towards Jerusalem to die. I'm heading towards the cross. And now we're getting to watch him step by step, moment by moment, hour by hour, as as he's walking towards the cross. He set his face there, and now we get to watch him. What is he going to do in his last night, his final moments, before he's taken captive? And our text is going to highlight this theme, this idea of faithfulness. Someone say faithful. It's going to show an example of of Jesus' faithfulness, but also a test of the disciples' faithfulness. Faithfulness is different than faith. Faith is, is what you believe in. It's kind of like, man, am I trusting these things? Sometimes we talk about faith of like, do I have enough faith? It's almost like this, this like gauge we think of like, man, how's my faith today? Whatever. Faithfulness is, is the walk to your talk. It's steadiness. It's steadfastness. It's showing up. We use, we use faithfulness in all kind of contexts in our life where we say, man, are you a faithful friend? Do you show up for your people when you're there? Are you faithful in your relationship? Are you a faithful employee, right? Or are you milking the clock? Faithfulness Faithfulness, again, is about that gap between the things that I say I believe and the things that I do. And so when we talk about that in a faith context, that might, that might be producing some things in you. Again, this gap between what you say you believe, what, what, you, what you want to do, and yet what you actually do in action. How is your faithfulness? It can feel a little exposing to have someone who is like a missionary on stage where we're like, yeah, the gospel needs to go to the nations. Someone else's kid should definitely go. But I don't know about like my kid, right? Or I, I've just got some career goals. I've got some dreams before I would ever go and like sell everything. Let me just get, let me just use my degree for a few years before I would go somewhere. Or let the kids grow up and, and get out of the house before I consider that. Or well, when the grandkids are older or when we talk about prayer, man, prayer is the most powerful thing we can do. And it's like, yes, amen, prayer is awesome. Oh, prayer nights when again? Oh, I missed how many of those? I was just busy, you know, it's, life goes on. Even this idea that the gospel is this good news for all people that, that everyone needs to hear about how good and amazing Jesus is. And it's yes and amen. But have you met my neighbor? Do you know the family I come from? See, this conversation about faithfulness is exposing because we can believe the right things and have the right talk. And yet when it comes to our walk, when it comes to that showing up in our lives, the gap between those two can be profound, discouraging. Maybe, again, this is producing shame in you because you know so many of the right answers, but the gap between what you know and what you do has been growing for years. It's uncomfortable. I didn't show up to docs and they hear this, right? But, but let's be honest with ourselves for a minute. Or maybe you're actually like, no, like I showed up. What, what more do you want from me, right? Like I'm doing good here. 
But if we looked at the pattern and the rhythm of your life, if you and I sat down and talked about what your walk with God looked like, the word faithful wouldn't necessarily be what the word we'd pick. It might be a word closer to comfy. You've settled for a cruise control Christianity somewhere along the way. You didn't even realize it. You're doing just enough to not feel exposed or not feel caught, but you're not really going to push the boundaries. Set it and forget it. Jesus, what more do you want from me? Again, maybe you're not faithful, comfortable. And for some of us this morning, you're not a Christian. And these things I'm describing, the gap between what Christians say they believe and what they do, you're like, yeah, that's exactly why I'm not a Christian, right? They're hypocrites. Now, now let me just say, a hypocrite is someone who, who knows about that gap and isn't, isn't desiring to change anything. They're going to put on a, a plastic face and a false front and not desire life change. That's different than a struggler or a sinner who is trying to change. That, that is different. But can I just ask you, if this was true, if, if the things in the Bible that we're talking about, the things that have actually drawn you here, if this is actually true, it is worth your life, isn't it? And if it is actually worth your life and worth everything, are you the kind of person that really could, could step up? Because maybe, maybe just maybe you, you are aware of the fact that no matter how hard you try to work and to change yourself, it isn't working. And so the reason why you haven't jumped fully in is because you don't want to be a hypocrite, but you know in your heart of hearts that that is exactly what you would be. You hear about people selling everything and moving around the world to, to go share Jesus with people, and you're like, man, I think if this is true, that's what I should do, but I don't know if I could do that, and so I'm just not going to, I'm not going to take another step forward. Friends, some of the most mature Christians I know are the most aware of the gap between what they say and what they do. I don't think any of us can escape it, whether it's producing shame in you and you're trying to work so hard to work your way away from that feeling of shame, or you're comfortable and you're avoiding, <laughs> avoiding looking at that gap in your life. We're going to look at a night where Jesus' faithfulness is on display, but his best friends around him, their faithfulness is going to be tested and tested in some of the most intense ways that they've ever experienced. And, and as we look at that, the thing that I've been praying this would produce in us, in our church, is actually a greater level of faithfulness, lessening that gap between our talk and our walk, but also a greater level of freedom. To those of us who are ashamed and see that gap, actually, what I think could happen if we really get this is a greater sense of freedom. And also to those of us who have settled for being comfortable and on cruise control, a greater level of faithfulness and stepping up. Y'all ready for that? Someone say, yep. Let's look at faithfulness. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane in Mark 14. We're going to start in verse 26. As you're turning there, just catch you up in the story. Jesus has entered Jerusalem, uh, triumphant on a donkey. There have been parties, and, and he's flipped over tables and all this stuff. And right before this, this is Passover time. Generation after generation celebrating God, freeing his people from slavery in Egypt. And Jesus takes this, this generation after generation tradition and pattern and he completely changes it forever. He says it's no longer about you looking back to remember, it's actually you looking forward to the freedom that I'm going to bring. He takes the cup and he says, this isn't just celebration of past victory, this is a proclamation of future victory that I win by my blood. His friends get together for this meal and then they go off into the night. And we're going to see what that night, Jesus' last night before he's, he's taken, what that looks like. Verse 26, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. 
It was tradition to, to sing um, one of the, the psalms, kind of the latter psalms, and they would make hymns out of it like we do, where you, you take good truth from the Bible and you put it to song and you, and you put it to melody. They sang together as friends, and they went out to this place called the Mount of Olives. It's east of the old city of Jerusalem um, on the other side of this valley called the Kidron Valley. So Jesus isn't going all the way back to Bethany where his friends were. He's, he's staying close to Jerusalem, but he's getting some space and some distance like we've seen so many times in his ministry to go and to be with the Father. In his humanity, the God in flesh, Jesus it communes with the Father, intimacy, withness, especially at pivotal moments of ministry. So they go out to the Mount of Olives. In verse 27, Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. For it's written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. His best friends that he's, he's been with, that, that they've eaten together, they've talked together, they've walked together for three years, he looks them in the eyes and he's told them over and over, I'm going to die and I'm going to come back. But he adds something different this time. He says, hey, you are not going to be as faithful as you want to be. I'm going to be struck like I've been t- telling you over and over, but you are actually not going to be faithful like you think. Verse 28, when I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. I am going to die and rise, but you are going to scatter. And he quotes Zechariah 13, this Old Testament prophet. But that whole chapter in chapter 13 is about God cleansing his people, God bringing restoration. But Jesus pulls out a verse from that and says, the way there, the the path to that promise is actually through me being struck. And when I'm struck, again, you are not going to stick with me the way that you think you will. But look at the hope he even includes in that. He says, after I'm raised, I will go before you to Galilee. I'm going to go and I'm going to meet you on the other side of my death. I will be raised, like I've said, and I'm going to meet you. You're going to scatter, but I'm going to gather you back. And Galilee's interesting because they were hoping and expecting for Jesus to be the kind of king, the kind of Messiah that would come to Jerusalem, kick out the Romans, and and kick off a brand new kingdom that would look like people with with their own vine and wine and all this stuff. It's going to look amazing. Jesus is flipping their expectations, saying, yes, I will come back, but right now I'm actually going to go back to your hometown where you're going to run to, and it's going to look different than you expect. The kingdom right now doesn't look like me setting up a political kingdom with with specific boundaries like this. It's going to be life to life and heart to heart, and I'm going to build it in a counterintuitive way. I'm going to go before you to Galilee and meet you on the other side of being struck. So how do you think Jesus' friends, his best friends that have been hanging out with him for three years and then celebrating Passover with him all night long, how are they going to respond to Jesus saying, you're going to leave me? Peter, as usual, speaks up for for the group. Verse 29. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. Which like, dude, Peter, come on, letting your boys down here. He's not saying we will. He's like, no, Jesus, I got you, right? I don't care if these chumps leave, I'm with you. (laughs) Cool, Peter, let's see how that works for you, right? Even if they all fall away, I will not. I am going to stand, even if I have to stand alone, Jesus, I will be faithful to the end. That's his talk, and he's saying that's what I'm gonna do. So Jesus, in a moment that that is tender and compassionate, he looks at Peter and he says, really? Look at verse 30, and Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. They all said the same. Again, Jesus is saying, you will scatter, and Peter is saying, no, 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 no chance. Even if it leads to my death, I am with you, Jesus. Jesus looks like he's kind of calling out Peter here though, right? He's like, no, you're going to deny me tonight. I I think there's a challenge in that, but also a grace in that to Peter. 
He's saying, hey, I'm going before you to Galilee. I will gather you back. And he's trying to, to press on Peter's pride, on Peter's talk. And he's saying, you might not be as strong as you think you are, but I'm still going to meet you. It's a grace to remind Peter that even if he doesn't stand up, even if he doesn't walk the way he's been talking, Jesus still sees and he knows. He, he sees Peter. There's even a level of grace that he includes him into these nights. He doesn't say, you're going to abandon me, so, so just leave now. It doesn't count. It doesn't matter. Go. He says, no, you're going to abandon me, but, but I still want you close by me. We're going to see an even deeper step of intimacy. Jesus invites these, these people, these men who are going to leave him in a few hours. He invites them even deeper. Look at verse 32. They went to a place called Gethsemane. It's a, it means olive press. It's in an olive grove. They wouldn't, they wouldn't haul their olive somewhere else to a factory or something else, but they, they would set up a press for olive oil in the olive garden. So Jesus is taking them to a quiet place, no one is working the olive grove at night. It's, it's a place where he can have some space and some quiet to talk and commune with the Father. And he invites his friends into that. He said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John. This Peter who was going to abandon him in a few hours. And he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. Verse 34, he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. I don't know what picture you have of Jesus when you think about him through the Gospels. Sometimes we have this picture of Jesus where he's almost like this weird kind of superhero guy, right? Where it's like, he just walks around and it's like, you're a leper, you're cleansed, boom, dead, you're raised, food multiplied, right? Like we have this weird, he's like floating six inches above the ground the whole time kind of thing. That, that's not... That's not the Jesus we see right here. And in fact, Peter was probably the one that told Mark these moments because he was there, he was close. Look, at, look again at, at what he records. He says he's distressed. He's troubled. My soul is sorrowful, even to death. Mark doesn't include some of the same details that other, other writers of this account include, like, like Jesus sweating drops of blood. He includes a few few short words, a few key phrases for us to clue into, but listen, this is what you need to see. Jesus from eternity past has been a member of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. He is God in flesh, but he's not using like God cheat codes to get through this night. He is feeling the incredible weight and pain of what he's about to do. He's not going in blind. He knows what's going to happen, and moment by moment, he is walking towards his certain death. He is going to feel pain. He's going to feel shame. He's going to feel distress on his shoulders. And it is, it is overwhelming to him. And all he wants is for his friends to be there with him, right? Just be here with me. Just remain with me. Just watch with me. I just want you by me. Look at verse 35. Going a little farther, he fell on the ground. The weight of what was going on was such that... that He's talking and he's praying and he's pleading with the Father and, and it's so overwhelming that he's down on his knees because of what he's about to face. He prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. Now, if you are skeptical about the Bible, if you think this is just kind of hero making out of some old teacher, like, yeah, yeah, Jesus is a moral guy, but people are trying to make him something he's not, there's no reason why you would include this night in the Bible. 
This actually doesn't make sense if Jesus was just a guy that you were trying to make into something else. This is too real. This is too authentic. This is too raw. Him saying, Father, I've known the plan from eternity past, but if possible, let's just do something else. Because the weight of it is so overwhelming, he is down on his knees. If, if the Bible is fake, this makes no sense. None at all. It's too real for that. He's pleading with the Father. The hour would pass from him. Look at verse 36. He says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but, but what you will. This is this moment of the mystery of Jesus being fully God and fully man on full display. In his humanity, knowing what he is going to go through will be unbearable. This thing he's been preparing for that he doesn't deserve will be so overwhelming that it's crushing him to his knees. But also being fully God, knowing that something is about to happen that, that almost makes no sense in reality. That the, the, the God-man, without any sin, would take sin on himself. That the members of the Trinity would be ripped apart in a way that has never happened in all of eternity. That should never happen when justice is done. Jesus takes it on himself. And again, Mark only includes a few key details that you need to zoom in on and see. He says, Abba, Father. Someone say Abba. There are only three places in the New Testament where this is recorded. The, the, the original manuscript is written in Greek, but Abba is Hebrew. Mark thought it was so significant to put this word in that he kept it in the original language. The word Abba is used here. Paul uses it in Galatians 4, and then he pulls it again in, in Romans 8. Maybe you've heard Abba is like what a kid would call their, their dad, like daddy, something like that. And, and it's true, a kid would use that, but an adult son would use it as well. It's a term of intimacy and respect at the same time. It's not like a distant thing of, of like father, but it's also not a childish thing. It is deeply relational, deeply intimate, but submissive too. Father, you're not distant from me, even, even with what's about to happen. We are close, but I'm, I, I want to relate as closely to you as I can as we walk through this together. He says this phrase, remove this cup from me. Someone say cup. Jesus is quoting the, these Old Testament prophecies again. He quoted Zechariah before, but, but this cup thing shows up in Jeremiah 25 and Isaiah 51. In Jeremiah 25, it's a cup of, a picture of a cup of God's wrath that's been filled up. I'm not gonna make you say wrath, but it's this picture that, that God's justice against evil, against sin, against injustice has been filling up. And people are gonna drink it and stagger. Starting with actually Judah and God's people who knew better, who knew God's character, who knew God's law, and turned away anyway all the way to the Babylonians who are these pagans who are oppressing and attacking people. We might not be comfortable with this idea of God's wrath, that might not be, again, what you showed up to Doxa for this morning, like, yay, cool, God's wrath. Like, that, that might even feel like, ooh, why are you talking about that in Madison? God's wrath. But listen to me, if you believe in a God who has no wrath, I, I don't know if that's actually a God you want to believe in. Like a God that could look at evil and injustice in this world and, and what, turn a blind eye to it? Not actually bring justice? Or, or a God that is so distant and impersonal, impersonal that, yeah, yeah, he, he deals with it, but he doesn't feel anger towards evil? Do you want a God that doesn't care if evil is happening in this world? 
Or do you want a God that is good but, but yet unable to deal with it like he's some kind of cosmic Santa Claus? That is not a God that, that you should worship or should be worth your life, and that is not the true God of the Bible. He does have wrath against evil and injustice and sin. But the uncomfortable thing about it is, if we're honest with ourselves, we, we deserve it too. Maybe you feel this, this tension and you don't really want to believe it and look at it because honestly, if, if this God of the Bible really is who he says he is, if he is perfect in holiness and justice and goodness and beauty, actually, if we are honest, we are not. And so there's some of this cup of wrath that you and I deserve too. Not just someone out there or some people, but me, you. So Jeremiah 25 is talking about this cup of wrath filling up that people are going to drink. But Isaiah 51 has another piece of this promise. Talking about the cup of God's wrath and saying there will come a time where that cup will actually be taken away from God's people. That the people who have trusted in God and walked with God actually won't drink that cup anymore. It's going to go somewhere else. Jesus is saying right here that those promises were about him. That God's justice wouldn't be, wouldn't be ignored or overlooked or, or kind of sent off somewhere else. Justice really would be done. Justice would happen. But for any who would trust in Jesus, he would drink the cup that we deserve. That we wouldn't have to stagger under the weight of God's holiness and goodness that we don't measure up to. But Jesus would take it in our place. And the plan from eternity past has been that justice and mercy would both be accomplished in Jesus taking the cup on the cross. But again, in this moment, Jesus' faithfulness is being pressed here. He's saying, if there's any other way, remove this cup. But look how he finishes that, yet not what I will, but what you will. He is being completely honest with the Father. He is not emotionless and pretending this isn't going to cost him, but he is being submissive. He is yielding. He is saying yes to the plan from eternity past. Not ignoring his feelings, not pretending that there's, that there's no gap in, in, in his emotion and experience, and yet saying, yes, I am all in for what we've been planning. Now these friends around him in, in this moment of crisis, these friends that he just wanted to be with him, remain, watch, stay close to me, just be with me as I go through this. What have they been doing while he's been crying out to the Father? In verse 37, he came and he found them sleeping. He said to Peter, this one who had said, I'm going to go till death, even if, even if everyone else abandons you, I will be with you. He goes to Peter, he says, Simon, are you asleep? Seriously, man? Like, come on, come on, like, where are you at? Are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? And yet you're going to go to death with me? You can't stay awake for one more hour? It says, watch and pray. You may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Maybe you remember Jesus saying in Mark 13, hey, watch, be, be awake, be aware, be ready. Both for the, the fall of the temple in Jerusalem and for his return later on, that be awake, be ready, Watch. In these moments, he's saying, like, temptation is coming. Temptation is this fork in the road, the choice between faithfulness or, or not. It's coming. Are you not going to stay awake and just be with me? And now, I, I can be a little bit hard on the disciples here, because I'm like, guys, Jesus was right there. He told you, hang out, right? But, but these guys have had a, a long few days. They have been 
out all night at parties. They've watched Jesus flip tables. All kinds of stuff has been going on. And they just ate a big old meal together, right? And now Jesus wants to stay up all night long. Come on, Jesus, right? Like, that's not even fair, man. You're going to put us through this? Jesus says the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. He's not talking about the Holy Spirit. He's talking about the human spirit here, right? And there are so many things that the human spirit can overcome, suffering and adversity, all kinds of things. But he's saying, in this test of faithfulness, you can't white-knuckle your way through it. You can't muster off enough willpower to be as faithful as really God deserves. If it is up to you to work hard enough to be good enough for God, you are going to fail. You're not going to be faithful. Even if your spirit is willing, your flesh is weak. You can't work hard enough for this. Even his disciples who have walked with him and seen him perform miracles and have talked with him and have been warned by him and invited into the garden with him, even they can't muster up enough strength in themselves to be as faithful as he deserves. Verse 39, again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. Mark keeps the details sparse here because he wants to focus us on Jesus' sorrow and distress and Abba and the cup. We need our eyes zoned in on those details. In verse 40, again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy. And they didn't know what to answer him. When that gap is exposed between your talk and your walk, what do you even say, right? They, they have no excuses to give Jesus. He warned them, he told them, he woke them up, whatever. And maybe when that gap is exposed in your life, like, what do you, what do you say? Maybe your inner lawyer activates and you've got self-justification, or maybe you've just got shame. In fact, maybe some of you have been, like, distancing yourself from community because you don't want to feel the shame of exposure in this. Like, there are people in your life that you used to be close to, and and they they would press in on these things because they love you and care about you, and you actually haven't been around them for a while because you don't want to see the gap between your talk and your walk because it's uncomfortable. They didn't know how to answer him. In verse 41, he came a third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It's enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Son of Man, if you remember, Daniel is this, is this title for this one that would come and receive a kingdom from, from Yahweh, from the Father, the Son coming and receiving a kingdom. He's saying, this is the way that I show you I'm a king. Not when I rode into, a, into Jerusalem on a donkey triumphantly, but these moments of faithfulness in the dark night. This is when I show you who I really am. Verse 42, rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. As I studied this, this passage, I was thinking, man, in this moment of testing, Jesus could have done so many things. He could have called down an, a, an army of angels to come and fight for him. He could have run away and, and, and said, hey, disciples, distract him, I gotta go, right? He could have performed the miracle and blinded them and just gone off somewhere else. He could have done so many things to get out of this moment, but his face was set on faithfulness to the plan that he and the Father had set up. This moment of testing, this is where his talk and his walk are really on display. 43, immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve. Mark puts that in intentionally. One of Jesus' boys, one of his best friends, one of the people that's been with him three years, that has heard him talk and seen him perform miracles, one of those guys, of all the people in all the world that should have known what Jesus was like and have been faithful, one of those guys, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, the religious leaders that from chapter three have been trying to find a way to destroy Jesus. This is their moment. 
Verse 44, now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. It would have been dark in this garden at night, and this mob of people wouldn't have necessarily known which person was Jesus. But Judas knew him intimately and well enough to know, even from his outline, that's the one. And he uses these signs of familiarity and intimacy to betray him, calling him rabbi. You're my teacher. You're the one I follow. The other disciples have been calling him that, saying, yes, you're, you're, my, you're my teacher. He's using that as a sign. And in Middle Eastern culture, men kiss each other on the cheeks as a sign of, of closeness and affection because, because when you come up and you kiss someone on the cheek, it's a lot harder to fight them or start, a, start a, you know, a conflict with them. You're coming up with your guard down. Judas uses these signs of faithfulness and familiarity to betray Jesus. Close enough to give him a kiss and it's like throwing a dagger in his soul. He comes and he calls him rabbi and he kisses him, showing the mob behind him, this is the one. In verse 46, they laid hands on him and they seized him. One of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Mark doesn't tell us who it was, but, but another account says it was actually Peter. He is trying to, to follow Jesus to death. He's trying to be faithful to his word. He said, even if they all abandon you, I'll go to death. He's trying to kick it off right now, right? He's like, all right, it's fight time. Draw my sword, cut off an ear. And, and that's not what Jesus is trying to do. If he had wanted to, again, he could have done anything to, to stop this mob. That's not what he was trying to do. Even Peter's best attempt to be faithful, he misses the heart of what Jesus is about. Verse 48, Jesus said to them, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching. You didn't seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. This is the plan. This is the promise. All the way back in Genesis 3, let the scriptures be fulfilled in what we do today. In verse 50, they all left him and fled. What he had told them a few short hours before has come true. He will be struck and they will abandon him. Their talk will not match their walk. They are not faithful in this moment of testing. Mark gives us one more level of detail to this. Verse 51, a young man followed him. This is potentially Mark showing that he was there at the events. A young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth around his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. He would rather be naked and ashamed, uncovered and running than be caught with Jesus. What do we learn about faithfulness from this? We learn a lot of what not to do. Disobey Jesus, fall asleep on the job, run away naked. Okay, great. We see what Jesus' faithfulness looked like. But listen to me, I, I don't really relate to Jesus as much in this passage. I see Jesus being faithful, and sometimes we can read things like this and be like, okay, don't be like the disciples. Try harder to not be like them, right? You better pray when you're supposed to pray. Don't abandon Jesus. Just try hard not to do that, right? But again, if I'm honest, guys, there's a bigger gap between my talk and my walk than I want there to be. Even when we talk about things like prayer, I, I felt like at the end of the Daniel series, I felt like God was kind of pressing on me, be devoted to prayer. I've said that and I've thought about it, but if you look at my prayer life, I, I don't think I'm walking faithfully to what God is inviting me into in that. And I could preach sermons on prayer and tell you guys how important it is and, and say yes and amen when Daphne's like, we should be praying. I'm like, yes, that's great but I'm not faithful. 
No matter how hard I, I, I try to white knuckle my way and, and will my way through it, I can't seem to, to make it happen. What about for you? Are you more like the disciples than, than you wish? Hopefully you're not running away, you know, butt naked, whatever, but, but maybe there are times where actually you, you talk a big game about how everyone needs the gospel and then you like drive right into your garage and shut the door when you see your uh, neighbors around. Or you feel like God has been pressing on you to be generous and give, and you're like, oh, wait, the, the backpack drive's over? Oh, shoot, I must have missed it, right? Like, like, you've got this talk that you think is good and true, but honestly, again, we're a lot more like the disciples than we wish. And listen, this has been true of, of humanity. There's another garden in the Bible, and not just this one. When God created a man and woman, Adam and Eve, he set them in a garden, and they had a moment of testing in their faithfulness. He set everything up for them to, to walk with him. He was with them and they had each other and they had food and provision, everything. But in their moment of testing, they were proved unfaithful. And the ripple effects of their choices and their lives have led to guilt and shame and fear in all of us to this day. You and I are, are children of Adam and Eve. We're brothers and sisters of these disciples. Whether that produces shame in you or whether you, you try to avoid that and just feel comfortable in your faith, it's the reality. If I was in the disciples' shoes, I wouldn't have done any better. I don't think you would have either. But Jesus, on this dark night, shines. He shines as this example of, of faithfulness and following the Father. He shines as this example of, of not hiding from the real weight and the pain of it, not ignoring it and pretending it was all going to be easy, holding it up to the Father but saying, yes, I will walk in the plan. But listen to me, he didn't just stand as an example or a good teacher. The, the goal of this passage is not like, hey, Jesus did a good job, go try hard to be like Jesus. That's not it. His faithfulness is actually the key to us being free to be faithful people. What Jesus did in being faithful to the Father is he took the weight of our shame and our guilt on himself. He drank the cup in faithfulness so that you and I could stand before the Father completely free and accepted and loved. Listen to me, in Jesus Christ, you are no longer on the line. Your faithfulness is not up for debate. It's not the question anymore. Even if there's a gap between your talk and your walk, that is not what God is looking at. He's looking at the faithfulness of Jesus in your place. If it was up to you, you would be naked like the young man and ashamed before the God of the universe, exposed. But Jesus covers you in his faithfulness so that you can stand before the Father accepted and free if you have trusted him. That is what he accomplished. Is that good news? You're no longer on the line if you're in Christ. You have nothing to prove to God. You have nothing to earn before him because Jesus took your place and that was the plan that justice and mercy would be accomplished at the same time so that you could be free to be faithful to the Father. You could walk in faithfulness, not because you could will yourself towards it, because the faithful one has made the way for you. Listen, Jesus' relationship with the Father led to obedience to the point of cross, the cross, and he invites you into relationship with him that leads to new obedience in your life. Again, not because you have anything to prove, but because you are free to love him. Jesus was faithful in the garden so that in those moments of testing of your faithfulness, you would no longer be on the line. There's no place for shame because you are covered. There's no place for guilt because you've been forgiven. There's no place for fear because you stand on his faithfulness, not your own. There's nothing to be afraid of before the God of the universe.
So what do we do with this? What do we do walking out of this kind of message? What do we do when we see this gap in our own lives? Friend, let me just tell you again, you are more free than anyone else in the universe, and so you're free to confess to God and man where that gap exists. You don't have to prove yourself to anyone in this room, anyone in this community. You don't have to prove how wide or narrow that gap is. You're free to confess where you're really at, and you're free to take the next step, whatever that means for you. Faithfulness is often not dramatic. It's not exciting. It's not sexy. It's not cool. It's not Instagram worthy. It's often just main and plain whatever God is inviting you into. It's often just that gap that is exposed between your talk and your walk moving just one tiny bit closer together. But it leads to extraordinary things. Let me give you an example. The, the 11 men that were with Jesus' closest friends that scattered, that abandoned him, that ran away, that proved to not be faithful. Do you know the end of their story? They go and they meet Jesus in Galilee, just like he said, and they are transformed when they see what he's done. Because he drank the cup, they are free to be faithful to God in ways that they, they never had been before. They begin to, to preach and to tell people about Jesus and, and give of their stuff generously and, and, and they start praying and seeing God move in amazing ways. And of those 11 that were left after Judas, church history and tradition says that 10 out of 11 of them actually did follow him to the point of death. When they couldn't stand with him that night, when it came time in their lives, they actually were killed for Jesus. Not because they were seeking it or chasing it or a big deal or whatever, but because they were faithful step by step to the point where God brought them. And the 11th that, that didn't die that way, they, they tried to kill him and then they exiled him to an island called Patmos. And it was John. There are men and women around the world today who are being killed for their faith in Jesus. Not because they are extraordinary Christians, but because they are ordinary people that have been loved by a faithful God and so they are free to do whatever he tells them to do you would meet these people and be like, yeah, what, what's the big deal? And that's exactly the point. The big deal is not you or me, but it's this faithful Jesus that drank the cup for them. There are men and women that are moving across the world to go share the gospel and learn a new language and a new culture and eat new food and experience new things, not because they are extraordinary people, but because there's this extraordinarily faithful Savior that just says, hey, take one step with me, a and you might end up somewhere you never expected. There are men and women moving for church plants and going and starting a new work in a new place and, and, and learning new grocery stores and neighbors and all of that because they've got a faithful God. There are men and women who are going and meeting their neighbors and coworkers and having those awkward conversations and saying, hey, have you met my faithful God? Not because they're Lone Ranger hero Christians, but because they've just met him and they're free now. Free to do things they never would have done on their own because they have a faithful Savior. What is that next step of faithfulness for you? Again, not to prove anything to anyone, but because the faithful one has covered you in his faithfulness and drank the cup for you. What is he inviting you into in relationship? Relationship leads to obedience. So, so what does he have for you? Here's what I want to do. I want to make space for you to take a minute and actually talk with him about that. If you're not a Christian this morning, this first step is not for you to try to obey God, but it's to to trust Jesus to drink the cup for you. To look at what he did for you and stop trying to earn or prove or get brownie points for showing up to church, but to trust him as the savior you need, the faithful one to cover you. That's what you need to do.
if you are a Christian and, and God is exposing, whether it's your comfort or, or your shame at the gap, would you just take a minute and ask him, what is that step of faithfulness you're inviting me into? Write it on your phone, jot it down in your notebook. I wanna take a minute for you to be in relationship with him and then see what obedience he invites you into before I close this in prayer. Be with him now. If you feel like Jesus is pressing something on you, would you just write that down? Don't, don't expect it to be dramatic or flashy, just faithful. Jesus, with my friends here this morning, I confess that the gap between my talk and my walk is far bigger than I want it to be. But I also confess and declare that you are faithful. And it is your faithfulness that we stand on that we are covered by. So even in these moments, if there is shame that is coming to mind or, or guilt, would you just in your kindness and in your love, would you, would you show again how faithful of a Savior you are? If you would meet the disciples back in Galilee if they, after they abandoned you, you'd meet us too. And those steps of faithfulness, would you teach us how to walk in light of the freedom we have in you? That conversation that we've been avoiding that we need to have, that, that person we need to talk to that person that you're inviting us to pray for right now and actually be dedicated to praying for them day after day, trusting your heart even when we can't see your hand. That number that we've been meaning to give that you, you've been inviting us to be a good steward of, would you, would you free us to walk in faithfulness? And God, the, the, the vision of a church of ordinary people like us very normal people with an incredibly faithful God as we walk in the freedom to be faithful to. Would you help us? Would you help us be a church that is a, a light for who you are, not because of, there's anything special about us, but because you are so good? Would you draw more people to yourself so that we can continue to sing and celebrate about your faithfulness and watch your hand in action? We trust you, Jesus. You are trustworthy. You proved it. You continue to prove it today. Pray in your name. Amen.